Well, I don't suppose there's ever a greater joy for any preacher than to preach on Easter Sunday. I always love preaching on Easter Sunday, and uh, I actually wrote my Easter Sunday sermon about six months ago, if you can believe that, and uh, just get excited about that. But unfortunately, or maybe I shouldn't say unfortunately, you're going to have to wait a year to hear that sermon, because uh, next week I've asked Brother Steve Pettit to preach and uh, to bring an Easter sermon for us. I know this is a very, very special day for him, Easter Sunday, and uh, he's just been through so much recently, and I just want to express my appreciation for him, and I thought, what better way could I do that, and could I really honor him than just giving up the pulpit for him? And I told him, I've said, I've never done this for anybody else, all right, and I'm doing it for you, all right, so looking forward to hearing from Brother Pettit next week, and uh, I do hope you'll be in prayer for him and for Terry, as they've just really been through a lot lately. Well, as we begin this Passion Week, and we turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. This is the Old Testament's most famous depiction of the cross. Isaiah chapter 53. At any given time, church members will experience suffering. Troubling family circumstances, lost loved ones, unfavorable medical diagnoses, miscarriages, medical decisions for your children, financial uncertainty, employment, frustration. And I wonder whether we have a context in which to interpret all that suffering. Well, look at Isaiah 53 and verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. And pay careful attention to the next two words. A man. Do we know this man? We know him as God, but do we know the man? A man reared in poverty, a man mocked as the bastard child of Mary, a man who starved in the burning wilderness, a man who was rejected in his native village, a man who experienced numerous attempts on his life, a man who lost his father and was finally powerless to care for his mother, a man who was unjustly pressed through six fraudulent trials. A man who was betrayed by a friend to a gruesome, horrific death. Do we know a man who fell victim to the most excruciating death the wicked Romans could devise? Defending crucifixion, Tacitus relates, it is the only means of terror that we can use to coerce such scum. Cicero called crucifixion the supreme penalty for anyone who defied the power of the Roman Empire. Seneca spoke of naked crucifixion victims being hung long in agony, swelling with ugly wheels on shoulders and chest. Isaiah offers a graphic description of the inhumane destruction of God's humanity. Would you look back at Isaiah 52 and verse 14? As many were astonished at you, 
His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Who is this deformed, wretched creature hanging on this cross? Is he human? It was the mercy of God to shroud that whole scene in darkness to prevent our eyes from gazing too long on that grotesque figure hanging on that cross. The scene is so shocking. Isaiah asked in chapter 53 and verse 1, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And friends, that's the context in which you have to read Isaiah 53. It's shock and awe. The scene is so astonishing that Paul can say the bright angels up there in heaven never saw it coming. Who would have thought to number God with the transgressors as a man? So let's take up our reading again with verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And don't read that word acquainted as mere passing acquaintance. He drained of the dregs the infinite cup of sorrow. He understands supreme human grief. Three years before coming to his cross, Jesus survived a brutal ordeal in the wilderness, eating nothing for 40 days while being assaulted by the prince of darkness. And keep reading. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That ugly, wretched figure in the cross was so loathsome, we turned away in shame as if we looked upon a leper. We cannot bear to look into the eyes of Jesus. But why is he hanging there on that cross? Verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Let there be no doubt, any grief or sorrow you know, a womb that miscarries, a body invaded by cancer, a family torn apart by sin, Jesus carried all your grief to his cross. We often focus on Jesus carrying our sin to his cross, which he did. But friends, that is not all that he carried to his cross. He carried the entirety of our curse to his cross. Whatever grief, whatever sorrow, he carries it all to his cross. Would you turn momentarily to Matthew 8, but keep a finger here in Isaiah 53. Turn to Matthew 8. And let's just contrast two verses. In Matthew 8, Jesus performs his first three miracles. The first three miracles recorded in God, Matthew's Gospel. Jesus heals a leper. That's the first miracle. Then he heals a paralytic. And then a woman with a fever. Now his first miracle again is of a leper. And notice the significant incarnational act in verse 3. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. No one touched a leper. Jesus touched the leper. Why? Well, look at verse 17, where we have Matthew's interpretation 
of those three miracles, including the leper. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now look at Isaiah 53 and verse 4. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Did Matthew misquote Isaiah? He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Matthew says he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Is this some sort of quotation error? Not at all. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew narrows the broader language of Isaiah 53 and applies it specifically to one particular aspect of our grief and our sorrow, namely our illnesses and our diseases. Jesus touched the leper and he carried his leprosy to his cross. Jesus died of leprosy. He died of paralysis. He died of fever. He died of cancer. He died of heart attack. He died of coronavirus. He died of AIDS. Jesus bore our illnesses, plural. Our diseases, plural. He bore all that to his cross. He bore away our griefs and our sorrows. He took our curse to his cross. Now back in Isaiah 53, let's notice what else Jesus took to his cross. Verse 5. That he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Our transgressions went to his cross. The punishment of our sins was afflicted on Christ. The wrath of God against all of our iniquities fell on Christ on his cross. Yes, indeed, Christ died for our diseases and our illnesses. But don't swing the pendulum so far in the opposite direction that you ignore Isaiah's emphasis on our sin. I think sometimes in our very modern world, we want to ignore our sin. The modern mind wants to say, well, Jesus came to heal us from you know, all the problems in creation, the storms and the poverty and the inequality and all the rest, right? All the frustrations of having to live in a cursed world. That's true. That's all true. But you have a massive sin problem. Paul describes it this way. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And then he says this. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of aphs is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's a whole lot of transgression. And Christ went to his cross, bearing all of that away. Now let's keep reading from verse 6 down through verse 10 where Isaiah further describes our transgressions and Jesus' response. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone, that's all of us, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And remember, all of that was born by a man. In the incarnation, God entered into radical solidarity with man through his suffering. Would it have occurred to you that the Almighty God could die as a sacrificial lamb? Would it have occurred to you that God would make his grave with the wicked? Friends, that almost sounds blasphemous. Would it have occurred to you that it was the will of the Lord to crush the Lord? Friends, this is all so mysterious. It's no wonder that John the Baptist and disciples really struggled to understand Jesus and his mission. It's no wonder those bright angels of heaven just stoop from their thrones to peer on the mystery of Golgotha. The incarnation is mysterious enough. But the incarnation really reaches its climactic moment of mystery at the cross. The mystery that turned out to be the most revelatory event in all of human history is the cross. That's the irony. What is happening here at the cross? Well, let's take a moment, friends, and let's reflect on the mystery of the incarnation as we enter this Easter week, this Passion Week. It is the incarnation of God that distinguishes Christianity from every other faith in the ancient world. However, let's be very careful about that. It's not because other religions lack a doctrine of incarnation. Christianity is distinct because of what God accomplished through his incarnation. That's where Christianity really separates from every other religion that has a doctrine of incarnation. The ancients, in fact, believed that God did appear among men, often to pursue illicit relationships with women, producing mongrel offspring. Homer's Iliad tells of a man named Hercules, a product of an illicit union between Zeus and a woman. Hinduism has a very long tradition of incarnation, incarnation of the gods called avatars. An example in the Bhagavad Gita tells of a prince, Prince Arjuna, who is about to take his chariot into battle. And he suddenly realizes that many out there on the opposing side are his relatives, friends, and even family members. And Arjuna turns to his chariot driver for advice who turns out to be none other than an incarnation of the Lord Krishna, one of the Hindu gods. And Krishna claims that he comes to deliver the pious and to annihilate the miscreants. Even at the present hour, the doctrine of incarnation is taught in Buddhism. And we'll take a minute with this, because it does really, I think, make a fitting contrast with the Christian doctrine. The Dalai Lama, a man named Tenzin Gyatso, is said to be the 14th reincarnation of a spirit sent by the Buddha to complete the work of spiritual enlightenment. 
Tenzin Gyatso was born on a straw mat in a cow shed in a remote, in a remote corner of Tibet. In 1951, China annexed Tibet at the Battle of Chamdome. And after a failed revolt, eight years later, the Dalai Lama fled the city of Lhasa for India. And he has lived in exile ever since. And he is widely regarded all around the world today as a holy man and spiritual leader. The Dalai Lama is now 87 years old. And there is considerable discussion whether he might be succeeded by a 15th Dalai Lama. At the death of the Dalai Lama, he engages in what is called Poba, whereby there is a transference of consciousness from him to the next Dalai Lama. It is the responsibility of the high lamas to identify the next Dalai Lama. The lamas visit a lake in central Tibet looking for a vision. And there is a female guardian spirit of that lake who guides the lamas as they seek out the new Dalai Lama. The high lamas monitor the smoke that goes up from the cremation of the previous Dalai Lama. And its direction, the, the, the smoke's direction, signals the, reaction, the direction of the earth that they should go to to seek a young boy who will be the next Dalai Lama. Once a possible successor is identified, he is shown several items that belong to the previous Dalai Lama, and supposedly he picks out the right items that belong to the previous Dalai Lama, and then they know that the spirit of Buddha has passed from the previous Dalai Lama to the next Dalai Lama. Uh, that could happen in a short time if the present Dalai Lama dies. Well, Buddhism has witnessed 14 incarnations of the Buddha to this point. But curiously, not a one of them has suggested a viable solution to the problem of human suffering. Tenzin Gyatso actually created quite a, quite a lot of consternation back in 1969 when he actually suggested that he might be the final Dalai Lama. The problem is he hasn't yet figured out what to do with human suffering. For the Buddhist, pain, suffering, evil is literally maya. It's a word that means illusion. All physical reality actually is unreal. We have to come to terms with this. Siddhartha, the original Buddha, claimed that enlightenment comes from denying any kind of attachment to the physical world. The physical world is to be totally shunned. The incarnation of Buddha tells us how to escape creation, how to get away from it all, how to cease suffering because we're not attached to creation in any way whatsoever. Whereas the incarnation of Jesus told us how God is going to heal creation. You have a former student named Atashith Chamanua, who was a Buddhist monk in Thailand. And he relates that he was forced to sit in a lotus position for hours on end at the local temple. Other monks would come along and they would strike him across the back with great big thick rods. And he was not allowed to feel pain. Because pain and suffering isn't real. So just keep beating the guy until he no longer feels pain. The only problem, he said, is it hurt. Pain is real. And friends, the Christian story never tells you to deny the reality of suffering. 
The Christian story says that the creation once perfect is now fallen. The curse has invaded every shoreline and every nation dwelling on the planet. The curse colonizes our body with bacteria, mutant cells, and horrific disease. The curse invades the womb, striking children in fetal development. The curse invades family relationships. It wreaks havoc between men and women, between young and old. It produces strife between ethnicities and languages. It produces war, theft, lying, rape, and racial division. The curse is everywhere. And the Bible never underestimates the reality of human suffering. In fact, the Bible explains the origin of it all in its third chapter. But the Christian story also says that God incarnated himself into a world of suffering as a man. He did not come to be buried as a god under a glittering pyramid or a royal mausoleum. He came to die as a man in the most excruciating and humiliating death possible. Even Albert Camus, the famous French atheist, recognized that Christianity is categorically different from every other religion. And that's precisely because of its doctrine of a suffering God. Camus wrote in The Rebel, Christ came to solve two major problems, evil and death, which are precisely the problems that occupy the rebel. His solution consisted first in experiencing them. The God-man suffers too with patience. And he continues, The night on Golgotha is so important in the history of man only because in its shadow the divinity abandoned its traditional privileges and drank to the last drop despair included the agony of death. Even the atheist understands The cross of Christ, where God suffers too, has forever altered the way that Christians view reality. The French philosopher Blaise Pascal proclaimed that Christianity is the religion of the humiliated God. Dallas Willard writes, Jesus so graced the ugly instrument on which he died that the cross has become the most widely exhibited and recognized symbol on earth. People the world over have found Christianity infinitely beautiful because of its humanitarian view of God. A God who suffers with the oppressed. From the dispossessed Cherokees watering the trail of tears while carrying their Bibles. To the Chinese peasants scrabbling the hard earth for food in Mao's revolution. To the Tutsi people ravaged by the Rwandan genocide. The Christian faith has always said, yes, God suffered too. Christianity is a story of infinite love poured into our broken human condition. Yes, indeed, other religions have a doctrine of incarnation. There's no doubt about that. But none of them have anything like the doctrine of a suffering God who identifies with man in radical solidarity. In Greek mythology, incarnation allowed the gods to sin in the bodies of men. In Christian theology, incarnation destroyed sin in the body of God. So friends, God's body on the cross 
is in fact the site where the original sin that brought so much misery and pain and suffering to the world was finally destroyed. And our sin was destroyed. The curse was destroyed in that body on the tree. God, absor- God, God incarnated, himself, incarnated himself to absorb all the pain, all the sickness, all the suffering, all the violence, all the sin, all the iniquity, all the curse. Just pour it all on him and let him die the death of a man on that cross. In Voltaire's novel Candide, Dr. Pangloss travels along with Candide and they travel the world looking for a solution to the problem of human evil, human suffering. And in Turkey, they meet a dervish who is considered to be the greatest philosopher of the century. And the following exchange takes place. Pangloss says to the dervish, Master, we come to entreat you to tell us why so strange an animal as man has been formed. Why do you trouble your head about it, said the dervish. Is it any business of yours? But, Reverend Father, said Candide, there is a horrible deal of evil on the earth. What does it matter, said the dervish, whether there is evil or good? When His Highness sends a ship to Egypt, does he trouble his head whether the rats in the vessel are at ease or not? What must be done, said Pangloss. Be silent, answered the dervish. Friends, in the Christian understanding of the world, we are no rats in the belly of the vessel. We are broken, we are fallen, we are sinful, we are sickly people. Nevertheless, we are redeemable. We we are redeemable through the humanity of God. Now listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. Paul says this, For our sake he, that is God, made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God took a body to undergo starvation, deprivation, ridicule, sickness, persecution, and martyrdom. He took a body so that he could fully experience the brunt of the curse. He knows what it's like to face the gas chamber at Auschwitz. He knows what it's like to feel the persecutor's whip. He knows what it's like to stare into the abyss of the grave. He knows the horrors of genocide. He lay in a blistering desert, lips parched, flesh flesh wasting away. But friends, there's more to it. Paul says, for our sake, God made him to be sin. God made him to be sin. That, I think, is the most terrifying verse in all the New Testament. I don't know how to preach that verse. There is a mystery there as deep as the ocean. Jesus never sinned. But God looked on His Son on the cross as if 
He had committed all my sins. And he brought all that weight of judgment crashing down on himself. Jesus' unity with us is so complete, so coextensive with every molecule and cell of my body, that God's judgment falls completely on him as if Jesus was the one who committed my sin. And my organic union with Jesus is so complete that God looks on me as if I was the one who succeeded in that burning wilderness of blistering satanic assault. There there is not a vestige of sin in me that God can target as the object of His holy wrath because Jesus has completely identified with me and my sinful flesh. He was made sin for me. And look at the middle of verse 12. He was numbered with transgressors. Now, friends, if Christ has completely identified himself with us in his incarnation, completely identified himself with us in his suffering and death, then where is this whole story going? Well, would you go forward one chapter to Isaiah 54? Isaiah 54, verse 1. Look at these words. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Those verses that I just read inspired one of the most consequential sermons in all of church history. It was from this very text that William Carey preached a sermon that inaugurated the great 19th century missions movement. It has been called the Deathless Sermon. And unfortunately, the manuscript has been lost. But Carey's two main points have survived. Here they are. Attempt great things, expect great things. In Isaiah's culture, especially among the Bedouins, the patriarchal family just continued to grow. And as it continued to grow, you'd have tents that would be added to tents, and more tents added and added and added as children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren multiplied. You'd eventually have this great whole labyrinth of tents that just went on and on and on. It just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger that just decorated the desert, as it were, out there. And there are actually places in Israel that you can go to today you can still see this phenomenon. The larger the complex of tents, the bigger the family. Well, this image illustrates the extraordinary growth of the family of the suffering servant. Don't hold back. Stretch out your tents. Lengthen your tent cords. Move your stakes out further and further and further. Just let the whole family just keep on growing. That's the imagery. The suffering servant wants a large Family. He wants an elaborate labyrinth of tents that stretches into bustling cities and across deserts, into towns and villages, over the hills, into the mountains. He eventually wants a great network of tents that just like covers the globe. Just stretch out your cords. Cover the globe with the gospel. 
Now, friends, as the passage proceeds, Isaiah speaks of the wonderful blessings that redound to the children of the suffering servant. Would you look at verse 5? Isaiah says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord, Yahweh of hosts, is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Friends, would you think of that truth? The Creator is wedded to his bride. Jesus, Yahweh, came to claim his bride from every tribe and tongue and nation. This is a joyful scene. Jesus is Israel's Redeemer. And he has come to expand his tents to cover the entire earth. Now read on. And let's notice the wonderful promise of verse 10. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. And does that not remind you of Romans chapter 8? Paul said, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor anything, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at verse 11. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. Does that describe you? You're afflicted, afflicted with disease, storm-tossed by miscarriage or a broken family. We'll keep reading and listen to the echoes of the new Jerusalem to come. Behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles and all your walls of precious stones. That's the new Jerusalem. It's right out there on your horizon. And listen to Romans 8 again. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Friends, we have a glorious future because of the suffering servant. But we also have to come to terms with the present And I wonder how many of us are feeling the flaming arrows of temptation, the arrows of despondency, of grief, the arrows of pain that drive cancer right into our bodies, the arrows that kill the fruit of your womb, the arrows that rain down affliction on your children and your parents, the arrows of strife between you and your employer. The arrows of discord between you and your family members. Well, friend, is there any relief from all of this? Well, look at verse 17. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of Yahweh. And their vindication from me declares Yahweh. So friends, let's be realistic. Weapons are formed against you. Isaiah does not deny it. There is no escaping that truth. But in Christ, they cannot and they will not succeed. 
You have a whole new heritage because you now belong to the family of God. And Yahweh will vindicate you. Listen to Romans 8 again. The Spirit Himself bears witness with your spirit that we are children of God. And if children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So friends, can we really just take refuge in this? Our, our future is secure in Christ. The suffering servant because of what he accomplished on the cross. But again, as we enter this Passion Week, I want to be realistic about the suffering that we experience in the present. I would be derelict in my duty as a pastor if I did not tell you that you will experience suffering in this world. You will. There's no escape. Paul said of Christ's heirs, we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Suffering is an indication that we still live in a fallen world. But friends, it's more than that. It's equally a testimony of the truth that we are actually united with a suffering servant. If you suffer, remember, you're united with the suffering servant. So suffering comes for believers. And that means that we may need to just rethink from time to time our whole perspective on suffering. Uh, I'm a little bit afraid to take the attention away from Christ and His cross. But even while Christ went to His cross, He was thinking about His loved ones. And the night before He died, He was thinking about His disciples. And so I think it's appropriate. I think if Christ were here, He would try to help us with our own sufferings. So, let me end today with three applications when it comes to suffering. First of all, we, we need a correct perspective on time. God's time frame is from eternity past to eternity future. This world clamors for solutions to problems right now. And that's because the world only gets 70 years. The world interprets delays in terms of minutes, hours, days. But God is an infinite being, and He has a much broader perspective on time. His short term is a lot longer than our short term. But would you look back at verse 7? Isaiah says, For a brief moment, that is, God says to Isaiah, I deserted you. For a brief moment. But with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Again, God deals with His people in an everlasting time frame. We say to God, why do I suffer for a day, for a year? Why have you afflicted me with a disease that I have for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years? Why have you afflicted me with a lifetime of disability? Why do I carry the scars of childhood abuse for 70 years? God afflicted Israel for centuries. Why? Well, here's what God says. That was all momentary affliction. My love for you is everlasting. 
God says, consider my time frame, verse 10. For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says Yahweh the Lord, who has compassion on you. How long would it take to erode away a mountain? God's love is longer. Secondly, we need a correct perspective on the merits of personal suffering. Every one of us will experience trouble and affliction in this life. And every one of us can look back at troubles in this life that we have experienced, and we can look back and see how God has preserved us and sanctified us through trouble, through affliction. Imagine a wife who was abandoned by her husband. She is left forlorn and destitute. Well, why, why would God allow that to happen? Well, look at verse 6. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. This is real. We have people in our church whose spouses have forsaken them. But again, verse 5, your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. What is your perspective on trouble that comes into your life? As we saw in Ecclesiastes, Solomon had all the world could offer, and he died a frustrated man, his kingdom split in half. Job died a truly happy man because he learned through suffering what true blessedness is. Thirdly, in our suffering, keep our eyes on Jesus the author and finisher of our salvation. As I pointed out on Wednesday night and have many times before, salvation in Scripture is not. It's not a momentary decision whereby I trust Jesus and all of my troubles just sort of evaporate. There is a time when you come to trust Jesus. Justification does happen in a moment in time. But the sanctification process takes considerably longer, a whole lot longer And Jesus modeled for us 30 years of suffering, ignominy, and shame. And in fact, his greatest suffering came at the end of his earthly sojourn. His suffering got worse. So Jesus, friends, never promised to deliver us from all suffering but to deliver us through all suffering. And that's precisely what the Holy Spirit did for the suffering servant. He did not deliver him from all suffering, but through all suffering for the joys of the new world that were set before him. Shall we pray? Our Father... Our hearts are turned to Christ this morning. There is no suffering that any one of us experiences that Christ does not understand, that he does not fully sympathize with.
And Lord, as we go into this Passion Week, I pray that you would help each and every one of us to take our, our suffering, our pain, our curse, our sickness, our disease, our frustration, and most importantly, Lord, our sin, our guilt, our shame, our transgressions, and to bring them to the cross and to nail them to the cross. Lord, perhaps we shriek back in fear of taking our sin and nailing it to the cross, but it's already been done. And I pray that we would, Lord, truly look on Christ this week. And as we think about the cross on Friday, and as we gather again on Sunday for the resurrection, I pray, Lord, that our, our, our whole spirits, our attitudes, our lives would be adjusted that we might be renewed in our spirits, and that we might go forth to gladly serve our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I encourage you for just a moment, if you're sitting out there and you don't know Christ as your Savior, just have a conversation with Him right there in your seat about your sin. Maybe you're not sure He can take away your sin. You can just ask Him that. Say, God, could you take away my sin? I'm not sure I understand all this, but I'm willing to believe, I'm willing to trust, and could you help me understand? It's perfectly appropriate to do that right there in your seat. And if you're a believer and you've been dealing with sin all week, which is true of all of you and me, would you also just take your sin and let let God deal with it? Confess it again. Anyone here would like any additional help? And you've looked at Isaiah 53, and the Spirit has worked in your heart, and you want to know more, and you want to talk with a counselor, would you be sure to mark the Connect card? Or just say something to me or to Pastor John or Joseph on the way out today, and we'd be really happy to talk with you today.